Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol tells the well-known story of Ebenezer Scrooge, a miserly, old, and greedy curmudgeon of a man who hates Christmas for all of its pointless nonsense. The giving of gifts, the singing of carols, the sharing of love is oh so impractical to him. It's wasteful, it's foolish for Scrooge. He cares not a bit for the poor hearts among him. He cares not a bit for Bob Cratchit, that's for sure, who barely gets enough coal to heat the office day in and day out. And he mutters the cynical words, bah humbug, as often as he can. It takes encounters with three different spirits which show him the error of his ways. And by the end of the story, on Christmas morning, he's a transformed soul. The selfless love of his nephew Fred and tiny Tim warms his soul such that the carols that he once despised, he now stops on the street to applaud and to enjoy. The celebrations he once considered foolish and wasteful are now glorious and valuable. People who once were just a means to making him more and more money were now valued and loved. The story's heartwarming as far as it goes, And it has been told and retold in countless adaptations since it was published nearly 150 years ago. What Charles Dickens makes abundantly clear is the all-controlling power of selfishness and greed in the life of Ebenezer Scrooge. That's undisputed. But to the degree his heart was, was cold and unfeeling at the beginning of the story... His transformation renders him utterly warm and compassionate and caring by the end of the story. Now, we recognize the made-up nature of this tale, but it has endured for a reason. Transformation stories are powerful. And in a more permanent sense, each and every Christian is a transformation story. What God has done through His Spirit to breathe new spiritual life into men and women through the gospel is nothing short of amazing. How He builds them together into a transformed spiritual community is even more staggering. Ephesians gives us the details to that incredible transformation story. But... As all good stories, the proper ordering of that story is very important. Now, many of you have heard the name J.D. Crowley. He's a veteran missionary in Cambodia. He's a mentor to many missionaries, but to our supported missionaries, Jeremy and Bonnie Ruth Farmer. He has supported and meant the world to them, and, and quite honestly, for the sake of the gospel in that entire region. But a few years back, he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans, the first of its kind for the Khmer people. And what he did was, in essence, interact with the idea of karma and to flip it upside down, or you might say, to set it aright. 
What is karma? It's the belief held by Hindus and Buddhists and others that basically says if you do good, you'll receive good. Basic idea. J.D.'s entire goal was to reflect on the Apostle Paul's utter reversal of this wrong idea by meditating on the book of Romans and by saying Paul's heart is that sinners under, under the wrath of God would come to believe that they must first receive good from God. That is to say, they must receive the righteousness of God before they ever have the wherewithal to be able to live in such a way that obeys the Lord and pleases Him. Karma kills the soul. It kills it with legalism, with pride, with self-reliance. But God's free grace transforms and frees the soul to obey the Lord and with joy and with love. This theme in Romans is the same theme that must be understood in Ephesians and virtually every other letter in the New Testament. The order is oh so important because our all-glorious, all-wise, and all-loving, and all-powerful triune God has predestined in ages past that His glorious grace would be masterfully displayed through the redemption and the forgiveness of a sinful humanity. And through the sinless work of God's Son, Jesus, we who came to live and die and rise, so people from every race, class, and social strata who confess Jesus as Lord can no longer be strangers and aliens, but can be fellow saints, fellow members of the household of God. This mystery has been revealed, Paul writes, and it is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The old self has been put away and the new self has been put on. Everything from our speech to our relationships with one another to our sexual lives must be transformed through the gospel of King Jesus. In in Ephesians, Paul elevates this theme, though, from the individual, which Paul interacts with in the book of Romans in a concentrated way, and he takes it corporate for the church. It is through the church, in the company of all the saints, that God's glory is set on display in its most vibrant colors, It is through the church that the song of the redeemed reaches its loudest volume and its greatest beauty. Since the church has received good from God through the incomprehensible love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, Paul writes in chapter 3, the church is now rebuilt from the inside out so they can obey her Lord's commands. This order of God's grace grounding and preceding our obedience is essential. If we take another path, it will undoubtedly lead us to the damnable end that karma similarly leads. So since the beginning of chapter 4, Paul has been helping the church of Jesus Christ unpack the mystery of this gospel in terms of its take-home value. So what does it look like when a church is shaped by deep thankfulness for the unsearchable riches of Christ. What does that look like? As we saw a few weeks ago, and as we considered the first 14 verses of chapter 5, 
the church must be growing in its imitation of God. They are to walk in love by walking in the light and running from the darkness. Paul continues along these lines in verses 15 through 20 as he calls the church to wisdom-controlled living in verses 15 through 17. And then in verses 18 through 20, to spirit-controlled living. Verse 15 begins with another one of Paul's uh, carabiner-type Greek words. That is to say, he likes to, to run up to his last thought and click that carabiner on it and say, I'm linking things, right? He does this all the way throughout his book. But this takes place as we transition into verse 15. We see here wisdom-controlled living. We read, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we might say Paul is calling us here to pay careful attention to how you live. Legend has it that it was Socrates who said the phrase, the unexamined life is not worth living, as he was standing trial for uh, perverting the, the youth of his day with his wrong ideas about the world. The self-evident meaning, though, here is brought out well by the Christian Standard Bible. It says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. So the preceding verse in verse 14 describes uh, spiritual sleepiness as something Christians must awaken from. We must live in the light of Christ so we can see the world as we should. Now imagine a, a soldier that's given an important mission. And perhaps he's given the task to, to maneuver his way through a minefield. And he is being told by his superior, you have got to pay attention. <laughs> there can be no foolishness. You have a singular job here. And with great skill, you have to make your way across this dangerous field, right? So a misstep, how you walk or don't walk, is a matter of life and death. The kind of skillful maneuvering that a perilous situation like that brings to mind is very close to the way the Bible describes the idea of biblical wisdom. Wisdom isn't being the smartest person in the room. Wisdom isn't reserved for sages and monks who live in ivory towers and are isolated from the rest of humanity. Biblical wisdom, scripturally understood, knows how to navigate life skillfully in a moral sense. It is moral skill. Running from temptation working diligently, controlling our speech, listening well to good counsel, loving the statutes and the commandments of the Lord, avoiding sinful snares, not squandering time. All of these are descriptions that Proverbs lays out so that the man of God might be complete. The man or woman of God might be complete for living a God-centered life. In verse 16, Paul writes, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. So we might say, 
Paul is encouraging us to maximize the time by knowing the times. Taken by itself, there's, there's nothing uniquely Christian, per se, about good time management. Uh, there have been scads of books written over the last five to ten years alone on increasing your productivity and becoming uh, a master of your schedule and, and getting the absolute uh, most out of your life. And these are good well. They have their, they have their value. But sometimes, maybe even oftentimes, there comes a way in which the conclusion is, so at the end of the day, you need to learn how to say no to everybody that could possibly hinder your goals or your company's goals. Right? Not exactly always the best strategy for meaning, meaningful, selfless church membership. However, this isn't exactly what Paul has in mind, but he is saying every moment counts. The brevity of life is an important reality for Christians in any era to grasp. If we read both phrases in verse 16 together, maximizing our time is rooted in knowing the times. So what is the time, we might ask? Well, if your mission can only be completed in a limited amount of time, checking your watch is going to be a frequent activity you are going to know where you are within the span of time you need to get the job done. The popular television series 24 from several years back was known for its countdown timer, or countdown clock that would expire more and more throughout each episode, uh, generating excitement among the viewers as well as a focus in the actors who were carrying out the plot with some helpful throbbing music that would, you know, help the countdown clock. But here Paul, he's saying, listen, recognize that you have limited time to accomplish God's work because you are living in an evil age, he says. Paul writes at the beginning of the Galatians that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. So Paul knows we will manage the days and the hours and the minutes of our lives best when we realize the ever-present reality of spiritual danger. Parents, think for a moment. Does the reality of spiritual danger present a ready topic of discussion in your life? Is it readily apparent before your children that the reality of spiritual danger is always there. Do your kids know this? Do they see it in your life? That there's a certain, in the midst of the joys of life, there's a sobriety. That we are not in heaven yet. We can't bubble wrap our lives to the point that we deny the reality of suffering and brokenness and sin. That there is a permanent and everlasting danger. That is the most real danger one could ever face. This is the goal of biblical wisdom to help people, not only children, know how to navigate life with moral skill that pleases the Lord. God help us to maximize the time He's given us knowing that the clock is expiring and our pursuit of wisdom living will be thwarted at every turn. 
We can expect it. Verse 17 says, Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So how then are we to walk in wisdom? We maximize the time by knowing the times and by actively resisting foolishness, by understanding God's will. Actively resisting foolishness by understanding the Lord's will for us individually and as a church. Notice the linkage again between gaining understanding from the book of Proverbs, specifically chapter 2, and Paul's emphasis here on wisdom. My son, Paul, or the author of Proverbs writes, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, applying your heart to understanding. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord, for the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Then you will understand what is right and just and fair, every good path. This is just from the first nine verses of Proverbs chapter 2. So rather than inventing a brand new concept or a set of commands here, I think Paul is demonstrating his familiarity with the Old Testament Scriptures. And he's calling the new covenant people of God to the same reality. Understand the Lord's will is running from the path of the fool. Understand the Lord's will is to pursue what is right and what is just and what is fair. Every good path. Understanding the Lord's will here in Ephesians 5 is making the best use of our time so we might live out a wisdom-controlled life. Now, wisdom living is hard. It really is. We live in an evil age that resists Jesus' lordship at every turn. Our own hearts doubt and our endurance wanes. And yet, in this call to wise living, We are promised the presence and the power of the third member of the Trinity to strengthen us for this work. We see in verses 18 through 20, the apostles call to spirit-controlled living. Verse 18 reads, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, grammatically speaking, verse 18 includes two imperatives. Do not get drunk with wine and be filled with the Spirit. And this is followed by four participles that basically carry out how this ought to look, how these things ought to look. Uh, And that is addressing one another or speaking to one another. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart. Giving thanks And lastly, the fourth point is submitting to one another in verse 21. Now, if you think of that fourth and final participle there of submitting to one another as maybe the fourth door in a hallway, if we're walking down a hallway, and this morning we're going to open each door and we're going to look at what each of these mean, we're going to reserve opening that fourth door for the next time we pick up this passage because... I've been studying throughout the week, I realize there's a lot in that fourth door. In fact, it opens us to a whole other wing of the house. (laughs) So we're going to keep that door closed for this morning and walk through it uh, the next time we interact with Ephesians 5 here. The call here Paul makes, back to verse 18, is to resist drunkenness 
by understanding the Spirit's work. So in one sense, you could say Paul is continuing his encouragement in wise living as the sin of drunkenness is condemned time and again in Proverbs. Indeed, a fool is one who has little regard for the unique pull and power of alcohol. While wine does represent joy and celebration in the Scriptures in certain places, the abuse of it, drunkenness, is wildly destructive. Debauchery and reckless living is the fallout, Paul writes. And perhaps Ephesus was uniquely vulnerable to this sin, as it was well attested that drunkenness was understood to be a a gateway of sorts to experiencing the ecstasy and and union with the god Dionysius, whose cultic symbol was, was the vine. So perhaps Paul is saying union with God does not happen through drunken ecstasy. It happens through Christ mediated through his spirit. Now, worshipers of Dionysius are not common today, but what is worship today in our culture? The almighty self, pleasure, sinful pleasure. And we might say with Paul here, the pleasure of God is far surpasses any pleasure that could be there in drunken ecstasy. Now, having said all this, I, I do think the thrust of Paul's argument is found here in using drunkenness as an illustration for us of the all-consuming sin that represents negatively the total body and mind control that alcohol has over a person when under the influence. And to the same degree, obviously not in the same way, Christians are to be filled with the Spirit of God. In the same way alcohol controls the drunken person for ill, God's Spirit should control Christians for good. I'm going to use the phrase, be filled by the Spirit, rather than with the Spirit, I think it's a better translation. Let me unpack that a little bit. There's much at stake if we understand and misapply this verse in particular. Spirit filling is is not a theme emphasized in the New Testament. Interestingly, this is the only place Paul uses this phrase in the entire New Testament. And bear with me here a a little bit. Walk with me. This is a a little bit more of a dense point, but I, I, I hope you'll see where we're going with it, and I hope it'll help us understand why we're, whatever door this is, why we're going through it. But the question we have to answer is, what does Paul mean by be filled with the Spirit? Be filled with the Spirit. Now, you might be reading this and thinking, now, I've, I've been a Christian for some time. I've been around this church, aware of its teachings. I, I do have all the Spirit, Right? I did get it all at salvation, or am I, am I reading this wrong? Because this might lead me to think otherwise. Like the Spirit is a, a, a gas gauge, and, I, and some of us are getting down near empty, and we may need to read our Bibles a little bit more to, to keep ourselves from running out of gas. Is that how we're to understand this? No. The New Testament refers to the filling or the fullness of the Spirit 15 times. And in each case, the Spirit is the content of the filling. However, Ephesians 5.18 is the only example we have 
in which a different grammatical construction is used, which clearly means the Spirit is not the content, but the means of the filling. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, what's the difference between these two sentences? I filled the pool with water, and I filled the pool with a hose. What's the difference there? Well, when I say I filled the pool with water, I mean to say that the content of what is in the pool is the water. If I say I filled the pool with a hose, I'm referring then to the instrument that carried out the delivery of the content. Does that make sense? That's the sense I think we should understand this phrase, that we are to be filled by means of the Spirit. Who is it that gets the job done of the filling in the Christian's life? The Spirit of God. That doesn't answer the question, what then are we to be filled with? What is that? Paul has already told us. He's already told us in the book of Ephesians. Let me put up a few passages here. And I want you to see these other examples in which Paul uses the same word that we have in our text, and he answers the question for us. He writes in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet. God put all things under Christ's feet and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Who does the filling here? Christ. Ephesians 3, 19, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. What is the content of the filling? The fullness of God. What is that? Well, most likely it is God's moral attributes. That is to say, be filled with the very character of God. Ephesians 4, and he who descended is himself also he who ascribed far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Who does the filling? Again, Christ. Now in Ephesians 5, 18, but be filled with or by the Spirit. This is the means or the personal agent of the filling. It is the Holy Spirit. So as one Greek master, Daniel Wallace, summarized, he said, believers are to be filled by Christ, by means of the Spirit, with the content of the fullness of God, the attributes, the moral character of God. And that is why he says, be imitators of Now, why to go to all this trouble of explaining spirit filling? Well, because I think it's a very important idea that sends us in some significant directions. Uh, In most Pentecostal circles and even some non-charismatic circles, being filled with the spirit can be viewed as a state of Christian maturity, that you're either in or you're not. This view was popularized in the Wesleyan tradition and later by the founder of Dallas 
Theological Seminary, Lewis Berry Schaefer and his followers, Charles Ryrie and others. And this was a, a theory, a belief about Christian sanctification, oftentimes known as higher life theology or second blessing theology. And it, it teaches that Christians are either in one of two levels. They're either a spiritual Christian or they're a carnal Christian. So it kind of views salvation as a pretty easy door to walk through. You know, you just say what you need to do. But then most Christians are going to live a carnal life. But then those that are really serious, I mean, they really are serious, they will burst into that second level where they won't struggle with sin anymore. They won't have to deal with the same uh, nagging temptations that we know on a regular basis. So I personally felt a, and was taught a version of this in my growing up years, and I can personally attest to the, the angst in my soul of longing to be in that second level, wondering how long it would take until I would finally be so serious enough that God would give me that grace to, to be in that, a, a spiritual Christian, where I could, quote-unquote, live the victorious Christian life. And it was very discouraging. And at certain short spurts of my spiritual life, I thought I had gotten there. And what do you think I did? I was extremely judgmental. I was extremely proud. I looked down. I thought, wow, why can't everyone get this pretty great up here? Now, this might feel a little bit ethereal out there, uh, but I would, I would venture to say if I were had five, ten more minutes just to explain to you some of the ways it fleshes itself out in our culture where a, a second decision to follow Christ is really what's most significant. Um, it, it's, it's kind of the air we breathe. Now, while there are good Christians who hold to this idea and spirit-filling, this verse in particular is a critical text in upholding that theory. We should ask ourselves, rather... Not, not, do I have all the Spirit? And if only I had enough, then I could live the spiritual life, the Spirit-filled life, the victorious Christian life. Well, maybe a better question rather than do I have all the Spirit is to ask, does the Spirit have all of me? Right? Am I withholding from the Spirit aspects of my life that I want to just worship other things rather than do I have Him? The answer is yes, we do. Paul has made it abundantly clear that this down payment of the Spirit is yours if you are in Christ. Knowing that we are in, it is Christ who by the Spirit fills us with the fullness of God's moral character. This changes people. And what is it going to look like when this is lived out? What does it look like, Paul, when this kind of life, a spirit-controlled life, is, is lived out? looks a lot like this. This. This is the context that he has in mind. The church. The gathered church. So we see in verses 19 and 20, the call to now exhibit the spirit's control as we live out a spirit-controlled life. And the example that is right out of the gates for Paul is this happens through musical edification. Verse 19, 
the first half of it, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So literally this means speaking to one another in musical ways that build one another up. Paul goes a bit further in his parallel letter of Colossians that was read for us early this morning, earlier, by linking such musical expressions to the teaching ministry of the church, teaching and admonishing one another in songs, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So what then is the difference between psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Well, you had to ask, didn't you? <laughs> it's a It's a dense question. You'd think it's pretty straightforward, but there has been so much ink spilled over how do we we split these things up? What are they? Well, lots of answers have been suggested, but it, it seems obvious that Paul is offering a variety of musical expressions that all find unity in building up the gathered church in corporate worship. Psalms, Well, the Gentile context that Paul speaks to would have been very unfamiliar with with Jewish psalms. But Jewish Christians, familiar with worshiping in the synagogue on a weekly basis, they would have sung these regularly, as well as their forebears in the temple worship that preceded them. Now, it's good for us to note here that Paul affirms the ongoing appropriateness of the Psalter for Christian worship. The Psalter is not just an old covenant people of God songbook that we can graduate away from today. No, he says this is for the Lord's people today. In fact, Jesus admonishes the disciples on the road to Emmaus, kind of calls them out for not grasping the fact that they missed that beginning with Moses and the prophets. And in the Psalms, he writes, These are fulfilled in Christ and point to Him. Psalms that we sing regularly at Eden. We sing a couple different versions of Psalm 23. The King of love, my shepherd is, and the Lord's my shepherd. Psalm 27, the Lord is my salvation. Psalm 42, as the deer. Psalm 46, a mighty fortress is our God. Psalm 62, my soul finds rest. Psalm 130, I will wait for you. Psalm 150, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And this is just a, a pretty quick survey that I tried to pull together. I'm sure there are more. The Psalms are a gift. They touch on every doctrine of Scripture. They speak to every emotion and trial of life. They wrestle with the hardest questions a human could ever ask. They evangelize the nations by calling all the kings of the earth to bow and to kiss the Son to do homage to King Jesus, knowing that one day every knee will bow before him. These themes and so many more are covered in the Psalms. And just think, all of them were meant to be sung by the people of God in all different ways. Antiphonally, a call and response through repetition, all sorts of different ways. You name it. One writer goes so far as to say worship in the early church was lyrical with Hardly a distinction between singing and speech. That lessons were cantillated, that means chanted. And prayers were intoned, meaning they were, frequencies were withheld and held out. And there was a a rhythmic beauty to what is being taught. The whole of worship, this writer says, was musical. 
so that it was difficult to distinguish music as a separate element of the worship. There was an intense lyrical and musical quality in the life of the apostolic church. Now, I do think there was probably a clear distinction between preaching and singing, but the point is clear. God's people can't help themselves from erupting in musical praise to God and to one another. It is just in us, and I would say is in all humanity, because there has never been a civilization in the history of the world that has not demonstrated their humanity in music in some way, shape, or form. God made us to express musical themes that both build one another up and exalt his name. The Psalms filled this role for hundreds, even thousands of years for the people of Israel, and now continually in the life of the church. What about hymns? A hymn, simply put, is a religious song about God. It is a song of human composure rather than of divine composure like the Psalms that reflects the character and the deeds of the Lord. A Christian hymn is uniquely focused on highlighting the work of Christ. Hymns are not simply the old songs that a church sings as opposed to the new songs. They have no time stamp on them. In fact, the church ought to continually be writing more and more songs because God is continually at work now in new and fresh ways in the world and for his people. One of the songs we sung this morning, Exult in the Savior's Birth, was just written a few years ago and beautifully reflects on the work of Christ. During the New Testament era, there were hymn guilds in Ephesus and other first century cities. But in Ephesus, there were hymn writers who wrote memorable lyrics and melodies that celebrated not the one true God, but celebrated the goddess Artemis, the supposed daughter of Zeus. And the music industry of the day was hymn writers who write themes that celebrate the rank immorality that took place in the temple of Artemis, three times the size of the Parthenon, and massive, massive amounts of moral degradation day after day. And how did they find it fitting in their debased humanity to celebrate all that? We're going to get a whole group of artists together who are going to write hymns about that, right? Paul's saying, not that. That is not what I have in mind. Your worship should erupt towards the one true God. Your hymn should not be about all that stuff. It should be about praising the greatest transformation story there has ever been. Paul's burden is that as believers walk in wisdom and walk by the Spirit, they would worship in song in a way that celebrates all that God loves. The songs of the redeemed matter. What you sing matters to God, and it should matter to you. Why? Because it is at the core of your discipleship. How you think about God and how you come to believe things about yourself in a large part is based on what you sing. You sing garbage and you'll believe garbage about God and about yourself. It's been said, show me the words of a church's 
that a church sings, and I'll show you the health of its theology. I think that's true. We are becoming what we sing. So sing the truth. Sing true things about God. In this final category of spiritual songs, it's unclear precisely what spiritual songs might be, but perhaps a more catch-all term that simply highlights the, the nature of the song. It is spiritual. And I think this descriptor of spiritual really applies grammatically to all three of these categories. I think that is what sets them apart. They are spiritual in nature, inspired by and empowered by the Spirit of God. Psalms, hymns, and other songs are to be spiritual in nature. Now, this is not to say that um, secular songs have no place in the life of the believer. That would be probably impossible to try to extricate ourselves from a context where that isn't there. Nor do I think it's even wise to not appreciate the, the beauty and the glory of much of what God has given to, through the gifts of, of um, humanity at large. And yet, when God's people gather in the worship of His name, we sing songs of all that God has done for us through Christ. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs clearly find their most obvious expression when God's people gather in the Lord's day. These songs are to be the substance with which God's people speak and they address one another. But as the end of verse 19 states, the church not only displays the Spirit's control through musical edification, where we build one another up, but through musical exaltation. Because who is the audience in the latter half of verse 19? Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So here, rather than the church building itself up in Scripture-saturated musical truth, the Lord Himself is the primary audience of our singing. Now, this is not to say uh, that these are two different things, uh, such that if Jeff were leading this morning, he wouldn't say, now on this song, you're going to sing to each other, but on the next song, then you can sing to God. No, we don't break things up like that. Obviously, there is a both and nature, that as our praises arise before the throne of God, we know that we are mutually at the very same moment building one another up. Christian worship in song naturally leads to verse 20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now it seems to me we see here continuous thanksgiving as a mark of a spirit-controlled life. It seems to me that when reading Ephesians, Paul can't stop talking about thanksgiving. In fact, if you caught it in the Scripture reading, the parallel text from Colossians 2 Thanksgiving is everywhere in those six or seven verses. Everywhere. Paul can't stop talking about it. Earlier in chapter 5, Paul puts forward the antidote to lustful desires, which he says is what? Thanksgiving. A heart that says, God has given me everything I could ever need. Why then do I need to be infatuated with things that I think can satisfy me better than Him? Thanksgiving is a deadly, spirit-crafted weapon designed to kill sin and to generate joy. 
Here, Paul says, thanks should be given to God always and for everything. I don't know about you, but I am drawn towards thankful people. They are, seemingly have a magnetic personality about them. There is something life-giving about truly thankful people. They look for opportunities to build other people up, and they are continually giving praise away to God and to others. Living your life controlled by the Spirit of God looks like Christians who love to come together to sing songs of thanksgiving to God. If giving thanks always and for everything is impossible for you, if you find yourself saying, I just, I I don't resonate at all with the spirit of thanksgiving, especially to God. I guess I can be thankful that I have a sweet car or I I really like my house or something like that. But God, I'm not thankful for anything. If if that's where your, your heart is, you may very well want to ask yourself, am I Am I trusting at all in the gospel of Christ? And if not, I'd call you to find a relationship with the greatest joy your soul could ever find. Or perhaps, believers, the vestiges of the old self have returned with a vengeance. And you've followed their ghastly cries for sinful pleasure. Repent. And here Paul saying to you, awake, awake, O sleeper, and Christ will shine on you. May God help awaken in us as his people an appetite for the infinite joys of walking in wisdom and living spirit-controlled lives. Let's pray to him now. Father, would you help us as your church to exhibit the Spirit's all-controlling power in our lives as we walk in wisdom. Help us to sing the songs of the new life as we give thanks to you in all things and in all circumstances. Cause us to build one another up, Lord. Cause us to build each other up in Christ as we minister to one another even in the moments that follow. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.